Well, thank you very much, uh, Tony, for your kind introduction. And again, to the Institute uh, of the Americas at UCL here for your invitation to participate in your speakers program. And of course, welcome to a nice Western Canadian September fall day. <laughs> now, um, what is one common feature about these three different men other than bushy eyebrows and bushy mustaches? All three, one world famous and the other two only known to their families, and friends were prisoners of war in Canada during the First World War. The material for this evening's presentation is part of the material that I've uh, found in various archives over the last four years or so on the topic originally of the administration of justice in Canada during the First World War. During my review of tens of thousands of criminal cases, I came across this particularly interesting file and I really wondered whether it was the Leon Trotsky. And as it turns out, he is the best known Canadian POW of the First World War. Now, the spelling of his middle name is a little different than most people understand it. And I took it from the prisoner of war records. All right. So if you sort of go, well, why is there an M instead of an N? That's why. Now, my presentation moves from the general to the specific by beginning with sh some short comments about the 1907 Hague Convention, specifically one or two of the prisoner of war articles within that convention, moving to providing you the Canadian context of the First World War internment and then looking at Trotsky's internment in April 1917. Of the many approaches that you can take in presenting this project or this particular presentation, I sort of wondered now what would be an interesting way of tackling it. And what I ended up doing is looking at his uh, book, My Life, that was published, I believe, in 1930. And he has a chapter about him being in this camp. So I looked at that and draw from that and look to other documents to support or not quite support his statements. And I have to apologize if this sounds like a, um, a legal trial and I'm presenting uh, documentationary, documentary evidence as we're going along, I apologize for it. As this is the Institute of the Americas, I would like to point out at least two connections to the United States. First, that Trotsky left New York City on his way that, that brought him into Halifax and into the internment camp. And the second, that until the U.S. entry into the First World War in 1917, the U.S. government represented the interests of Germany and Austria-Hungary and had full access uh, through their consuls right across Canada uh, to the internment camps and internment stations on a regular basis. The Canadian, so, and as you appreciate, he does have links to Mexico, but I'll leave that for somebody else to touch at another time. Now, whoops, whoops, previous. Okay. One of the things that before I carry on is I just want to acknowledge um, a, a number of organizations and of course the archives I've been to 
because as anyone who does research appreciates that without research money, you don't get very far. So certainly the Canadian First World War Interment Recognition Fund lent me a great assistance in providing a significant amount of funds to do some of this research as, long, as well as two other organizations in Alberta, Canada. I also, that gave me the opportunity to visit about 10 different archives, including the archives here in, uh, in Kew Gardens. But, uh, but it was very interesting because you get a chance to see from different perspectives and from different parts of Canada what was going on. So in accordance with the 1907 Hague Convention POW articles, the belligerents were required to establish offices to track information about prisoners of war, and then to forward those reports to the belligerents. And currently I'm working on a project where we have found the records that were sent to Vienna about Austro-Hungarians, and this tied in mostly people of Ukrainian origin uh, who came from parts of Ukraine that were under the Austro-Hungarian monarchy. And this has been a very interesting uh, exercise because again, every person that was uh, taken as a prisoner of war, there's a paper trail. And you could even track down where they were living when they were interned. Now, so this was part of this effort. Now, the UK Bureau began operations on the 17th of August, 1914, and remained in place until March 1920. Over the course of the war, the organization grew from a staff of 14 people to almost 500, because they ended up having to document over 600,000 prisoners of war, including those coming from Canada. There were almost 1,600 different places of internment within the British Empire. And this gentleman was the head of that. Bureau. The Canadian head of the Interment Operations Office was a retired Major General, and he was brought in by via cabinet order and appointed commanding officer or officer commanding the Canadian office on the 6th of November 1914, and this office continued until his final report on the 30th of September 1920. Now, one significant difference between the Canadian and the British offices was that the British office, their role was simply to comply with the provisions of Article 14, the administration of POW information and records, while the war office was responsible for the discipline and management of the internment camps throughout the United Kingdom. And what was interesting is over the, this split in personalities, led to interesting discussions and conflicts over the course of the war and the National Archives have some very interesting correspondence between all the agents involved in this equation. It's almost as if there was a second war within the government <laughs> on how to deal with this. Because one of the critical issues that, kept, that keeps coming up through both Canadian and British records is the British concern about reprisals that we have to be careful about how we treat German and Austro-Hungarian Austro-Hungarian prisoners of war, Turkish, Bulgarian later, because there'll be reprisals against British and Canadians held in the German camps. Now, the Canadian office was responsible for not only doing the paperwork, 
but they were also responsible for the camps. And early in the war, initially the responsibility was under the Minister of Militia and Defense, and, but within the first two, three months, that switched over to the Department of Justice. Where there was more justice in what happened, you'll have to wait for my thesis and the subsequent book on that subject. Now, one of the things, having spent a lot of time in the military, this has assisted me in understanding where to find documents because the Canadian Office of Interment Records were destroyed or disappeared. They're not available. So that's the last thing that you say to a lawyer, the records aren't available. And so over the last few years, there's been some interesting um, findings that I've had, including the original standing order that General Otter issued to commanding officers of every internment camp that hadn't been found prior to a couple of years ago. And I want to, this basically, this is the first page of nine, and it sort of outlines to commanding officers of these internment camps how they're supposed to operate. And last uh, fall, University of Exeter, I did a presentation on Canadian compliance with the Hague Convention. And I know that the Canadian office certainly kept track and wanted to ensure that they did comply with the Hague Convention, and to a large degree they did. Now, I want to just draw your attention to number nine at the bottom. Because in a few minutes, when we talk about Amherst, there's going to be a good illustration of how that particular element was dealt with in within the camps. I'll just give you another moment. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay, I, I, I was hoping it was going to be big enough. Uh, members of each company, okay, pris okay, number eight, as prisoners of war, other than officers, will be divided into companies, huts, tents, or as may be decided, so into buildings. And that the members of each company or building will select a captain who will assist the staff, the internment camp staff, uh, in maintaining order in his company, etc., and will bring to the notice of staff any matter bearing upon the comfort or well-being of the men which requires attention. So it's all good military writing, looking after your troops kind of thing. Now, just above there, just for fun, number six, in case of an escape or attempted escape by individuals, the whole body of prisoners will become liable to loss or curtailment of privileges and to the enforcement of more stringent discipline. Now that sort of got watered down a little bit as the war went on as well. And there were a number of escapes and I've actually been able to find a number of uh, escape files because every time there was an escape, the military would need to have a border court of inquiry. So you have testimony of all the people involved. You have even maps of what, where the tunnel was. It was sort of like the great escape from World War I. That's another book, wait for that one. Now, I thought I'd put this map of Canada in because I find that a lot of people don't appreciate that Canada has five and a half time zones. And there's a, a little illustration of the United Kingdom in the right upper corner. That's about the right size as compared to Canada. Because Ireland is about the size of the province of New Brunswick. Now, Amherst, so as you see, there are basically internment camps 
and stations located sea to sea. I don't think they were required up in the Arctic, so there's none up that way. But the Amherst Kent that we're going to be interested in is right here. If you've ever been to the East Coast, Nova Scotia, Halifax, and then Amherst is just a little bit away. Now, during the First World War, 8,579 people were interned as prisoners of war in Canada. The reason for internment, most often amongst the civilian internees, was being destitute, being poor. And in fact, General Otter, who commanded the operations during the war, as well in his final report, cited cities who were basically using the internment camp as a way to get rid of the welfare roles that they were responsible for. So you had literally hundreds of men in Montreal who were without work being interned. Uh, because again, you had 1913-14, economic issue crisis, not only in Canada, but I think around the world and so on. And literally he went through and noted which cities were literally taking their people off their welfare rolls that they were responsible for and putting them in internment camps. Now, outside of that category, and you could never, I don't think anyone in this room could ever um, make these reasons up of why somebody was interned. He was acting in an ugly and suspicious manner. Defying authority, lack of employment, and the ultimate, bad character. Those were all reasons for a civilian to be put into an internment camp in the First World War in Canada. Some of this may attach to our colleagues, I would think. <laughs> now, on top of that, there was a registration system, and over 80,000 uh, people of Ukrainian and German descent and background also had to register and report on a regular basis. And literally every city, town, village, hamlet, and outpost had, which had access to a police office or post office was a registration center in Canada. Now, as you'll note, there are over, there's 24 plus internment camps in six provinces. And during the First World War, it cost $4 million in money at that time. I just did a quick translation into today's dollars, that'd be 47 million or 28 million pounds in today's dollars to run the camps for the part of, for the court, during the course of the First World War. Now, some of the camps were like this. If anyone's been to Banff, was planning to go maybe on a ski holiday, this is the kind of surroundings you might find yourself in. Now, remember, you're not enjoying the wilderness. You're inside of a 10-foot barbed wire fence at the foot of it after you have built it because there was no camp there before. And civilian POWs across Canada tended to be interned within their general geographic area. So this was in Banff, Alberta. So if, for example, Trotsky had gone up the other coast of Canada and stopped in Vancouver, there's a good chance he would have ended up in a camp like this. If not this specific one, there were three or four others scattered throughout the mountains of British Columbia. Instead, that became his home 
It was a factory in Amherst, Alberta, or Nova Scotia. It made railway uh, parts for the railway. Now, who can intern? And this is a list of people in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, where Trotsky ended up being interned, of who can, in fact, make a decision that you're a bad character and I don't like you, so you're going to an internment camp. No appeal, no question, because the Canadian law was significantly different than the British law. One, it allowed for internment simply on the basis if you were an alien enemy. And there was no appeal. The law basically said that only the Minister of Justice can release someone from internment. Whereas here in England, there was an appeal board that you could take your internment to before you had it to go to court. In Canada, you couldn't even do that. There was no system set up. So these are just sort of a list of some of the types of people that have the authority. Now, chief constables, well, cops, seems to make sense. Military, we're given the responsibility right off the bat because, again, Canada, the British Empire, was dealing with hundreds of thousands of people of German and Ukrainian descent who maybe who are reservists. And it all ties into universal conscription throughout Europe. Border inspectors make sense. Clerks. Immigration agents. One of the more interesting ones was the private company police officers. So there was a mine uh, not too far away from Amherst, Nova Scotia, in Cape Breton Island. And um, the uh, person who was in charge of the company police office was designated as a person who can intern because 80-90% of the workers there were Ukrainians from former Austro-Hungarian Empire, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, therefore enemy aliens. So he had the power to intern. And this is uh, about ninth, about tenth, about a third of the, uh, third of the way down uh, where it gives his name up in here. So you had a wide variety of people who did have that right or responsibility to intern. Now, going to the Trotsky situation, who was to be taken off the ship? And this is a memo or a letter um, by the British, because it has a captain of the Royal Navy uh, officer who went on board the ship to take a look at who were these people. Because this was dated April 1st. And these were the list of people that were going to be taken off. Trotsky, his wife, and two boys, although I've got a picture of her daughter. So I don't know whether she came, she was much older and didn't travel with them or whatnot. As well as a few of his compatriots as part of the revolutionary group who left uh, New York City. And this is just closer. Now, Captain Mackins of the Royal Navy did the questioning based on a, 20, on, a, on a cable that he received on the 27th of March 
from London to take certain people off the boat in Halifax, quote-unquote, pending instructions. Quote, these are Russian socialists leaving for purpose of starting revolution against present Russian government, unquote. So again, this is April 1st, and they weren't taken off the boat until April 3rd. So what I've done here is, in blue, I've quoted Trotsky out of his book and about the, out of his chapter on the, his internment in Canada. And then this is just sort of covers off the highlight by the Canadian officer as to who was taken off, where they went, and what happened. So there were six men that were sent to Amherst, including Trotsky. The wife and children stayed in Halifax. Initially, they looked at going to the home of the Good Shepherd or the Salvation Army. From what I understand a little bit, they seem to have stayed there, but because of the language difficulty, uh, they ended up in the home of the police interpreter, a fellow by the name of Horowitz. And this was a very interesting comment. At the bottom, we noted that the naval control officer had decided to deport women and, the women and children to the United States. Obviously, they never were deported. Because Canadian-British law allowed a state to decide who comes in their country and who doesn't. So they could just as easily have sent them on back to, back to New York. Now, the reason for the internment. Now, this is a letter, as I indicated there, from a few weeks later from the internment Canadian Internment Operations Office to the Undersecretary of External Affairs. And it's very interesting, the words they use. It's like with law. Magic words and phrases have significant meaning. Replying to your wire, men referred suspicion of being Germans. Okay, so that is a reason that you can detain someone. Stop. Regret cannot release un unless upon definite proof of being Russians and loyalty to the Allies. <laughs> now, this was very carefully worded statement. Now, I don't know if General Otter and his staff knew that they were carefully wording it or whether this was seemingly like a, a, a standard response, but this was a ground that was used to intern a lot of other civilians who weren't quite as famous as Trotsky for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You have a big bushy mustache, you smell of garlic, you don't dress like us white folk do, therefore you must be an Indian enemy. Well, hold on, I was a British subject three years ago. Ah, you're off to the internment camp. Four months later, the fellow connects with his family, has the naturalization certificate sent to the camp, and then he's released. There was one example in the Justice Department files um, where a fellow was working on the railway as a chef. And again, as you notice in Canada, you know, you're talking quite a few time zones, so you're cooking, cooking a lot of meals as you're going on the train. Well, he was taken, he was living in Toronto, took, taken off the train in Winnipeg, and interned because his last name was Munch. Well, that didn't sound very English, so somebody figured, well, he's got to be an alien enemy, so they detained him, 
put him in an internment camp, and then finally, two and a half or three and a half months later, he was able to prove to the authorities he actually was a British subject, and British subjects weren't supposed to be interned, although there are examples where that was sort of forgotten about. And um, he was released. And then how this came to the justice file was he then had the audacity of asking the government to pay for his lost wages and for his medical expenses and for his wife having to see a doctor because she's suffering from stress and it's going to take him, if he even gets his job back with the railway as a chef, it's going to take six weeks before he's going to see his first paycheck. So can you please send me $200? Well, I'm... I'm I'm sure you folks probably can guess what the answer was from the government. Too bad, so sad. And it went on. But, like I said, so this is why this was very interesting when I came across this. Now, why would they arrest someone and how could they hold them on suspicion of being Germans? Now, Amherst internment camp. I just quoted Trotsky discussing some of these points. Um, he sort of thought it was the place was confiscated from its German owner. Well, the owner was a company that had been in Canada and operating and building railway cars since 1891, and eventually part came, became part of the Canadian company, company Bombardier that builds airplanes and rail and track and all that kind of stuff. So, and there was actually rent being paid. And that took about a year of negotiations uh, before that was done. So one building on this site was used to house an, a battalion of Canadian military until July 1915. And the other site, prisoners of war, from mid-April 15 until the end of September 1919. During the summer of 1919, the German sailors that were part, that were... Uh, the significant majority of the people interned in this camp began to be repatriated. And so, for example, in late July 1919, 557 Germans left this camp for Quebec City to catch a liner back to Germany. And as I mentioned, it wasn't confiscated, and the letter at the bottom is just first part of a two-page letter where they end up uh, the government agrees to pay $669.08 per month. Not $700, not $650. And they had this calculation about insurance issues. I'm sure you don't want to. Anyways, so Trotsky's statement about the bunks was in fact correct as well. Now, as I touched on a few moments ago, a significant number of the folks here that were interned were German sailors. And that is true. And again, I've quoted Trotsky in the blue above there. And in 1916, a total of 710 POWs, that went up to about 850 uh, the year Trotsky was there, and then dropped again the following year in 1918. So the majority of the sailors, and this is a Again, a, a photograph of them, I guess after one of their choir performances or something. Majority were taken from German auxiliary cruisers when they were sunk or captured by British ships. 
for example, one of them was the Wilhelm der Gross. Probably mispronounced that. This was early in the war, and many of them first spent uh, their initial internment in camps in the Caribbean. And that's been very interesting to discover, and I'm looking at, and I've been trying to track the people that were in camps all over the Caribbean, and then were brought up to Canada. Now, one of the reasons this happened was one financial for some of the Caribbean nations, or colonies, but also the Germans found it too warm in the Caribbean. And, and this was a comment that I found in some of the reports of consuls going and visiting these internment camps in the Caribbean. One of the comments on the outside cover page is precious because somebody wrote in, this sounds like a good holiday spot. <laughs> Minus the barbed wire, I guess. So, now, one of the other things that was tied in with this is, uh, over the course of the uh, war, uh, there were various repatriations begun, depending on age, incapacity, and so on. And there was an interesting story that appeared in the Canadian press about one of these men, who was referred to as Fritz, because he wouldn't give the reporter his name. And he was being rep uh, repatriated as an exchange prisoner of war. And he was sent to Montreal unescorted, but in a German naval uniform. And he went on board the train going to Montreal and found a bunch of Canadian sailors and sat in amongst them, thinking that, you know, a sailor is a sailor, right? Well, that caused a little apprehension, not only amongst the sailors, but also the rest of the people in the carriage. And he was sent to Montreal to meet up with the Swiss consul who was going to then escort him onto a liner going back to Germany as part of this repatriation. Now, I was thinking, now, why would the military have sent him by himself? Well, the only thing I could think of is there was what was called parole. And this was uh, officers and senior non-commissioned officers would sign a document saying that they would not do anything to injure Canada or would obey the laws and so on, and on trust as gentlemen to gentlemen would give that on your word, you are going to make it to Montreal, you're not going to skip off the train, and you're not going to disappear. And that was the only reason I thought that they would have probably allowed him. And he could have been one of the petty officers because petty officers were also in and amongst the sailors, but they had a separate living quarter. Now, this parole issue got the Canadian uh, internment office into some bit of trouble because in one of the camps in Western Canada, near Lethbridge, Alberta, um, the parole was granted to some of these German officers that were the, in that camp. And they went golfing. And the uproar in the local newspapers about these German prisoners of war golfing in their neighborhood led to some immediate changes in how they were going to deal with this whole question of parole. Now, typical is paperwork. The military loves paperwork. The law loves paperwork. Universities love paperwork. <coughs> 
Now, this was a foundational document um, that every prisoner of war had completed on them. The first page, which is this page here, is um, filled out by the camp staff. So again, on the left-hand side, has the person's name. Starts off with their number. He was number 1098. He was the second of the bunch, I guess, who was processed because one of his fellow um, revolutionaries is number 1097. It indicates where he was captured, the date of capture, the date of interment, who did the capturing, his height, weight, that he had a dark mustache and a dark beard on his chin. And they had also thumbprints. So I'm sorry if it didn't really come out right, but there's a left and a right thumbprint. So and it wasn't just for him. They had other identifying marks would be written on this as well. The second page is the page the prisoner would complete. And again, it has some more interesting and more personal information. The form is written in German and in English. And uh, here, uh, right at the top, talks about him being a political exile. And again, the military was interested, has he, was he a reservist? Had he served time in the military? Because that would then focus the internment staff's attention in a different way on him. And he wrote down here, have not served. So he gave as his occupation a journalist. And where he was born, and his signature towards the bottom. So again, every prisoner of war in the whole system, in the whole British Empire, would have filled out this form at least. So that's why the staff expended from, what, 47 or 16 to almost 500 people here in London. Now, what's interesting is what's necessarily not in the records. Now, in Western Canada, where the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, or the Mounties, uh, were the prime police force outside of the major cities, they developed two forms. One was a 29-question questionnaire. I've only printed off the first page, as well as sort of a concluding crime report. And this sort of talks about this particular fellow, John Marchuk, Ukrainian background, but noted as an Austrian POW, where he was arrested, by whom, when. The result of the investigation, the result of that form being filled out, he's an Austrian of a fit age for a soldier. Not that he is a soldier, but he's a fit age. Has been crossing, recrossing the international border between Canada and the U.S. because of unemployment, looking for work. And the decision, I came to the decision that this man is a subject of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, has been crossing, recrossing the international border between Canada and the United States, interned. The one part that's missing is, well, how does it impact on the war? And has he committed an offense, or is he a danger to the Canadian war effort? Sort of missing in that equation. So, again, they had various questions, which was very good, because... For family looking for information about a particular individual, they have the person where they were came, where they were born, their religion, when they arrived in Canada, if they remembered, and so on. But again, for Trotsky, this wasn't done. Now, when he arrived, what did he necessarily receive from the government? A cap, a pair of suspenders, boots, and so on. Now, again, we're talking 
Oh, the climate's sort of not probably too much different than here. Well, maybe a little colder in the wintertime. Out west, you had a little bit more, uh, a few more supplies were given um, because, again, of the working in three-foot, four-foot snowdrifts. But this is what he would have probably received. Now, he wrote about food and chores. Now, under Article 6 of the Hague Convention, prisoners of war can volunteer to do work that is not directly related to their own support. So they have to do chores on site. And the cooks there in that photograph from Amherst are probably German POWs who volunteered to cook as their effort. To the left is the daily ration per man at the Amherst camp, a pound of bread, split peas, sugar, tea, butter, milk powder, coffee, and so on. And this issue of labor came up a number of times, and it often seemed during the First World War that not only was there a battlefield in France, but there was also a diplomatic battlefield. Literally hundreds of diplomatic notes got passed from the Germans complaining about things that are happening, and labor was one of the ones. And the American consul, this is out of his report, there's still some dispute whether across Canada it was all voluntary. Now, if you did volunteer for work, like for example in the harvest or something, you were paid 25 cents per day, which is what a soldier would get beyond his soldierly pay if he was going to be doing something other than being a soldier. So, and that money would then be available for you to buy uh, things at the canteen. And again, it just sort of talks about the conditions. The parties go outside to nearby farms or in the woods. Um, their work day is eight hours. A guard goes with them. They take their food. And that the consul interviewed them in 1916, and no one said that they were being forced to go to work. In Western Canada, the conditions were slightly different. They were building roads and sides of, along the sides of mountains and heavy work like that. A little different than on the east side. Now, one of the other interesting things that uh, Trotsky mentioned in his book is that many of the prisoners practiced crafts and made things out of wood. Like oftentimes at auctions here, you'll see trench art or things prisoners of war made. Well, they were doing them the same here. And what's unfortunate is they used wood alcohol to deal with, whoops, sorry. Let's see, there's a statement in here. Okay, he'd been using, he had, he was suspected, this fellow who ended up dying, drinking methylated spirits, which he had been using as a solvent for shellac, which he used to polish his wood carvings. Upon being questioned, he admitted to having taken about eight, eight ounces of methylated spirits on the 10th and said he was troubled with vomiting until the 21st when feeling blindness coming over him, he reported himself sick. 
So he ended up dying from drinking. Now, what's interesting is this was part of a quotation from a German uh, medic. One of their, uh, yeah, POWs was a medic who tended to uh, German prisoners of war, and that was his testimony during the Board of Inquiry. Now, as I mentioned, there were Board of Inquiries, and I'm sorry about this red. I, I tried removing some of that color and then printing disappeared. But when somebody died in the prisoner of war camps in Canada, they had a red sticker on their file. And as I mentioned before, the military, whenever somebody escaped or died, always did a court of inquiry. And this is, uh, this is one, not this man's who died of drinking those spirits, but another fellow who died of Spanish influenza. Now, these deaths in the camps were reported to the belligerents, and I've come across that in the material that I'm looking at from the Austrian archives. Now, Trotsky also mentioned having to live with insane prisoners of war. Now, the Canadian authorities were very careful, and there are many examples of where that I've come across where they've taken people that were certified as insane and put them in Canadian insane asylums until the end of the war. And then they were repatriated. And the one at the top is a, is a first example of a doctor, a Hungarian surgeon journalist reservist incapacitated sent to Nova Scotia insane asylum on the 18th of September, 1916. And then out of Amherst camp, just after Trotsky in 1918, where again, another POW was identified as having the same issues. So it wasn't like they were forced to, but it would take time and they did uh, take care of these people in the Canadian medical system. Now, one of the comments that Trotsky made was about being POWs not necessarily being morally or physically fit. And these are again a couple of photographs of some of the things they did. The group on the right uh, apparently is the choir in Amherst. Group on the left is they were doing plays. And I've recently uh, purchased uh, off auction uh, examples of British soldiers in German prisoner of war camps doing the same thing. And these photographs of them putting on Gilbert and Sullivan in camps and so on. Now, just to go back uh, for a moment on the um, morally, physically fit. Um, the American consul noted in his report that there was a piano and a stage in the barracks. There was a library of about 700 books. There was a canteen where prisoners could purchase tobacco, water, aerated water, stationery, postcards. There was a gym with exercise equipment. There was an outside recreation area of four acres. The YMCA had built a two-story building on the site that was built for education and recreation. And they held classes in that building in more than 30 subjects, from woodworking to various languages. 380, apparently, of the 859 prisoners of war regularly attended these classes. And again, the religious needs were looked after with mass held for Presbyterians and Roman Catholics. But I think most Germans were Lutherans. I didn't see the word Lutheran as part of that, now, I mentioned earlier at the start about that one section about having captains. 
A degree of self-government was also introduced in Amherst at the camp that Trotsky was at. Party leaders, that's what they were called, who were chosen from amongst the POWs to represent their concerns to the camp commandant. And there were eight of them in Amherst. Now, one of the other things that somebody thought rather mistakenly, it's like sending that, that one fellow on by himself on board the rail, was as many of the sailors were trained telegraphists, someone on the camp staff thought it'd be a good idea to bring in a telegraph practice machine for these German sailors to maintain their skills. Now, this came to the attention of the British military intelligence when they were looking through, censoring various letters coming into the UK. And they wondered, how is this possible that this telegraph machine should only be able to transmit maybe two meters for these sailors to practice. And they said, I don't think so. And I imagine someone who has some smarts could probably make a two meter transmission into longer transmissions and that's what they were concerned about. So the British government informed the governor general that they thought this should be removed and it was. Now, there were protests about the internments by a number of Canadian organizations. Social Democratic Party at begin or mid-April had a meeting where they passed a resolution. Therefore, be it resolved that we protest against the internment of the Russian revolutionaries and ask for their release. And then this is just a continuation of that motion. And again, towards the end of the month, just before this release, we understand these, men's are, these men are Russian subjects. It's the view of the political amnesty granted by the new Russian administration to political prisoners. Also in view of the fact of freedom of speech and press that has been introduced. Something no failed to, we failed to understand why these men should be detained by the Canadian authorities. Excuse me, what's the date of that? This is uh, April 25th, 1917, so a few days before they were released. So these are the kind of letters that came in to the Canadian government ministers who then shuffled them off to the justice minister. This is, again, just a copy of the uh, Admiralty instructions. The one on the left we saw earlier, which was a summary by the uh, Royal Navy captain. And then this on the right is the actual confidential uh, document that came in. These are Russian socialists leaving for purpose of starting revolution against present Russian government for which Trotsky is reported to have $10,000 subscribed by socialists and Germans. And this was dated the 29th of March, 1917, so five or six days before they were actually interned and questioned. I took a look at the National Archives hoping to find the smoking gun, even something more interesting. And I haven't included any documents from there, despite the fact there were like four or five Trotsky files. So that anything new other than what already was in place. Now, ah, the legal position. So now because the internment operations were under the justice minister, he then took a look at the situation in the second, third, 
the third line, I may inform you that complaints are being made about the detention of these Russians, and so far as I can perceive, we have no legal authority to hold them at the internment camp. So, move them out. And this is dated uh, on the 10th of May, 1917, when they had already been released. So I guess there were some verbal, and maybe they just decided to develop a paper trail to confirm that. Now, this just confirms uh, their departure from Canada. Uh, this is from the Internment Operations Office, the Canadian. Basically, uh, the suspect, Leon Trotsky and the other suspected Russian revolutionaries who were interned at Amherst by naval authorities on the 3rd were released under instructions from the British Admiralty and placed on board a steamer for Petrograd. Now, the legacy... Now, one of the things that Trotsky noted in his, uh, in his My Life is that while he was there, it was constant meetings, constant speeches, and in fact, the camp commandant said, get rid of this guy because he's rabble-rousing everybody and creating disturbances that we didn't have before. So I thought I'd take a look and see if I had any material about if there was any legacy of that revolutionary spirit and the ideas. And because Trotsky thought that this group of sailors that he was talking to uh, was, were ripe for hearing these uh, thoughts and ideas. So apparently this came to the Minister of Immigration from the, uh, the Veterans Association Advisory Committee saying, we heard that the German prisoners of war in Amherst camp uh, have been receiving some revolutionary literature. Can you tell us why this is happening? And the response from the internment office was, apparently, there was a former interpreter, a fellow by the NEF, F.W. Herbert, whose disloyalty was ultimately discovered, and he has suffered in internment in a different camp in northern Ontario, which was a little rougher than this one was. So I think this is dated August 9th, 1919. So two years after he had left, and you had this, and this was all part of the Bolshevik scare and everything else that was going on between the UK and Canada. Thank you for your time and your patience. Uh, I, hope I, I, I hope I didn't bore you too much with the documentary evidence. And again, thank you very much, and if there's any questions.